You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we've obviously got a lot to discuss today, especially with the news over the weekend that Gilbert Burns is out and Jorge Masvidal is now apparently in against Kamaru Usman in the UFC 251 main event on Saturday night from Yaz Island. Uh, First, though, an equally important update on the CME's UFC 251 fight party that same night. We promised to have some information for you guys, and now we do. It will be socially distanced, of course. We're going to be hosting a private Zoom meeting during the UFC 251 main card. It's very exclusive because the party is available by registration only, and it's capped at 500 participants. Once it's done, my understanding is that we'll be able to post the audio and video over at the Patreon page. But if you want to get in and experience it live along with us, you'll need to sign up this week. It's going to work like this today. We're going to publish the registration link over on the Patreon page for all of our $10 patrons on Wednesday that link will become available to all of our $5 patrons. And on Friday, the link becomes available to our $1 patrons. So uh, if you want to take part in that, help support the show and have a lot of fun in the process, go over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up today. In fact, Ben, I'm going to go ahead and hit publish now on the the fight party link for $10 patrons. Okay. Right now. I just did it. Whoa. Shit. You're crazy. It's up there. It's up there. Uh, we had another update too, right? Oh, voting in the movie club. Voting in the movie club has wrapped. That's right. A narrow, narrow victory for Kingdom over the just the basically the idea of classic TV. So, you know, we talked about this before. Kingdom has several seasons. We don't know if we're ready to commit to all of them just yet. What we will commit to is that we will watch season one of Kingdom and discuss. If you want to get in on that with us, you get in that top tier of the Patreon, just like we did for Road Agents back on our Deadwood rewatch, like we've done for the CME Movie Club. You join in there, patreon.com slash co-main event. We're all going to watch Kingdom and see if there is actually, as I'm told by several people who I consider somewhat reliable sources on Twitter, is it true, Chad, that there could possibly have been a good MMA TV show? And if so, what the hell's wrong with me that I haven't even really heard of it or watched it before now? You know, I watched the pilot when it came out on Audience Network or whatever it was when it first premiered a long time ago. I thought that the pilot that I watched was all right. Uh, uh, people have said that the the first season is eight, and then it gets kind of better after that, the second and, and third third seasons. So we're going to go ahead and dip our toe into the pond a little bit here with the first season of Kingdom. But I think we're going to have an option to extend, correct? Like if we watch the first season of kingdom and we like it and we want to keep going. We, we, we will, we reserve the right to do that. We reserve the right to, uh, to carry on into the second and perhaps third seasons. And if we want to just put a bullet in that thing's head and end it because we we're not feeling it, we also reserve the right to do that. That's right. 
Um, all right, Ben. Well, here's what we're going to do this week, just because uh, big news, obviously, out of UFC 251 with Gilbert Burns being out, Jorge Masvidal being in. We thought that we would have a sort of freewheeling discussion this week on the CME about that topic, about all the uh, the ins and outs having to do with that, and just see where that takes us. We got some listener mail on the topic we're hoping to use to uh, to guide us a little bit along the way as, as we continue. But first of all, let's just start with uh, let's start with Gilbert Burns being out, and okay. then we can move on to the implications of Jorge Masvidal being in. This news broke over the weekend, uh, as it so often does. Yet another instance where the UFC has had to scramble and 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 replace its main event here on, on UFC 251, as it has so many times in the past. This one, of course, coming in the middle of the pandemic era here in MMA. Ben, what was your first reaction when you saw that Gilbert Burns was out? And uh, and how did the emotional roller coaster strike you here over the weekend? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously... I don't think it's a stretch for us to say that Gilbert Burns was not our first choice for the challenger here for Kamaru Usman. But once he had accepted the fight and once the UFC was plowing ahead with it, it wasn't that hard to talk yourself into being excited for this fight because, you know, obviously Gilbert Burns has been on a bit of a tear lately. He's a good fighter. The idea of former teammates separating to go their separate ways for a training camp and then they're going to show up and fight each other. And that's obviously some interesting stuff. And so I was curious to see how it was going to play out. But then when you hear he and all his cornermen that they're positive for COVID-19. And from the sound of it, it's, from what he wrote on Twitter, it seems like he's actually experiencing some symptoms. It's not one of those things where it's just, hey, I'm positive and who knew? I, I, I feel totally fine. He said that he's actually feeling it a little bit, had a headache and everything, was hoping that it doesn't get worse, all that stuff. And so, and especially when you think about the situation that Gilbert Burns was in where he was ready to do this twice, basically, the fight twice during the pandemic. Fought Tyron Woodley, you know, and then they say, hey, do you want to get right back in training camp, turn right back around, fight for the welterweight title? Yeah, he's not going to miss that opportunity. So, yeah, he says he's going to turn around and do that. And so he is really by being willing to go along with this, he kind of put himself at risk because he that's what he wanted to do to, to pursue his career. I mean, you could argue that he really did it three times, right, because the Demian Maia fight was in March. That was the one, right, where they uh, – it went off without any crowd, right? Because and that was like the early days of the pandemic. Yeah. Maybe hadn't really hit Brazil too hard yet. But the, he fought Demian Maia there in March. Comes back, fights Tyron Woodley in May, and then is going to fight Kamaru Usman in July. And so it's like he was willing to put himself at greater risk for contracting this thing just by, by virtue of being in gyms and close quarters, training with people. Like you're upping all your risk factors, not to mention all the travel to get to all these things. And he was willing to do it. And so then to see him knocked out of the fight because he contracted the virus, you really got a feel for the guy, man, because he was willing to do all the stuff that they asked him to do. And like somebody was asking me in my mailbag today, like, is Gilbert Burns going to get paid? And, you know, recent history suggests that it's not that encouraging, right. your chances for getting Gilbert Burns paid. And yet, man, shouldn't he get paid? Like he he basically seems like he put himself in a position where he was way more likely to get this virus just so he could train and be ready to fight when the UFC wanted him. And then he gets the virus, the whole thing that is making you have to do quote unquote fight island to begin with, he's out of the fight, and then it's just like, well, sorry, Gilbert, go home and hope you feel better, buddy. Like yeah. he, he you gotta feel bad for that guy. He's like, oh, he did nothing wrong there except just say yes to everything that the UFC asked him <laughs> to do. 
Right. Yeah. No, this was another situation where I saw that this guy had, had tested positive and was out of the fight. And it was, you know, all over again, kind of made me feel like, should we really be doing this? Is this a thing that, that we should be doing? We probably shouldn't be having fights when the, uh, when this virus is still kind of going crazy all over the globe. Uh, so I felt bad for Gilbert Burns, for starters. I felt bad for Kamaru Usman when it seemed like maybe the fight would be off just yeah. because, uh, you know, he had moved his training camp to Denver, as you mentioned, that it couldn't have been cheap. He was up there training with Trevor Whitman. So uh, to see that fight fall through, I think, made me feel a little bit bad for him. And it also made me think like he probably would be motivated to have a replacement opponent here just so he doesn't you know, uh, potentially lose that expense of moving up to Colorado, not to mention all the the trouble that he went through just to get ready for a fight. I'm sure that just competitively speaking, Usman was was feeling like he wanted to get out there and defend the title and, and have a fight since he'd been taking all these, you know, jumped up through all these hurdles to, to, to get ready. Uh, so there was that aspect of it as well. It started out as perhaps uh, – Maybe just a pipe dream that we would get to to Jorge Masvidal here, but as we sit here on Monday morning, uh, seeing that he has passed his COVID nineteen test, that the a deal has been reached between Masvidal and the UFC, it kind of seems like he is in now. And and as I as I tweeted out yesterday afternoon, when we still didn't know if this thing was going to be final or not, this is about the most UFC way possible to get to. Finally, Usman versus Masvidal, (laughs) because this frankly should have been the UFC 251 main event all along. Yes. And it was just that the UFC and Jorge Masvidal couldn't come to an agreement on a deal financially. So they decided to go with Gilbert Burns, who was kind of hot as this is sort of like up and coming welterweight contender. Then Burns gets knocked out with an illness. And now uh, Masvidal is, is in in the fight that probably should have been the headliner all along. And suddenly the UFC has uh you know a lot of of urgency to make this deal and so we're able to to financially come to terms so it was all just a uh a roller coaster ride and just uncanny i guess again speaking to the the UFC's unbelievable resources especially when it comes to talent that it seems to make a practice out of soft landings i guess when it comes to these sort of emergency situations this close to big events yeah you're right. It is like you kind of fucked around and guessed the right answer on the quiz. Or, you know, if it didn't involve a potentially deadly virus, you might say it's even like a, a romantic comedy kind of circular plot where you just wind your way around and you end up with the right guy in the end. And yet, you end up with the matchup we wanted, Kamaru Usman versus Jorge Masvidal. But you can't say the circumstances were exactly ideal. I mean, they were good. The circumstances were ideal for Jorge Masvidal getting the UFC to pony up. Because, as he said, he, I think he, he told ESPN that he didn't get exactly what he was asking for, but he got a lot closer than what the UFC was offering before. Because suddenly, he has a ton of leverage, right? They, they need somebody to step in and save this fight. There aren't like an endless amount of options that you could choose then that, that would actually make sense and that would help sell the pay-per-view. And so they come around to, to Jorge and they're like, hey, remember us? Remember that conversation we had where we said we wouldn't give you any more money? we would like to reopen negotiations. And so you're in a much better position. You get that money and everything, and you're stepping in. But you're also stepping in on about a week's notice, a little less than a week. And you're going to fight the welterweight champion, you know, the best guy in the division. That, I mean, just just in terms of making the weight, you've got to think that there's at least some questions about it. Because, you know, Jorge Masvidal is not a small welterweight. And a lot of people... Their weight cut isn't just a matter of 
hey, I'm going to have a couple bad days here and not eat and get in the sauna and that's how I'm going to do it. A lot of them, it's they're dieting and training and everything with an eye toward the weight cut. Like what I'm eating in the weeks before and how I'm handling my body before that is all so that the weight cut will be easier and I can make sure that I can do it healthily and safely. And he's going without any of that. And not to mention just all the other stuff that's piled on top of a fight like this where you got to go, you got to fly from Miami to Las Vegas, take your test in Las Vegas, quarantine in a hotel in Las Vegas. If you're clear there, then you get out on a plane, go to the other side of the world in Abu Dhabi. Then you get there, you got to take your test in, in uh, quarantine and all that stuff. And then you're going to end up fighting in the middle of the night so that it can be broadcast here local time. And like, that's a lot of, of just stuff to be piled on all for what looks like it's going to be the biggest opportunity of your career. Yeah. And you will recall uh, several weeks ago when we, the UFC and Jorge Masvidal were still at odds over pay and it didn't seem like he was going to be fighting anytime soon. One of the things that Dana White brought up was like, hey, this guy just signed a new contract recently, just signed a multi-fight deal. Well, here it comes breaking across the newswire today, according to Ariel Helwani and Mark Raimondi over there at ESPN. Jorge Masvidal has signed a new multi-fight contract ahead of UFC 251. So again, this goes back to what we were talking about when this discussion initially started. And we were saying, here's why UFC fighters don't experience free agency. They always have to ink these long-term term deals. Now, despite the fact, you know, maybe because of the fact Jorge, Jorge Masvidal says he's happy, he says that he got, quote, very, very close to what he wanted from the UFC in the first place. But now again, another multi-fight deal signed by Jorge Masvidal in order for him to get the Kamaru Usman title fight. So when the when UFC ownership comes out and says, hey, man, this guy just signed a new deal, I think we always have to take that news with a grain of salt because it seems like it comes part and parcel with these big opportunities that the, that the fighters need and, and want in their careers. Uh, let me read this tweet that floated across my timeline yesterday from Brad McLean, which I thought you know was a good point. He said, is this the way we want our big fights, though? Legit contender forced to fly halfway across the world to fight on six days notice. Sounds like a recipe for disappointment. Ben, what about this aspect of it where I mentioned, you know, the UFC, because of its tremendous resources, because of its tremendous talent reserve, seems to have this knack for soft landings for sort of like slipping on the banana peel, but still landing on its feet. And in some cases, as far as fans are concerned, landing in a better situation than it was in before because i think we can all agree that you know masvidal is the fight we wanted we didn't necessarily want gilbert burns so now to get kamara usman versus jorge masvidal we greeted with great enthusiasm from fans but what about this aspect where this is one of the bigger fights of the year that i think we were looking forward to to having been to getting made and now that it's here like we get it under the somewhat disadvantageous circumstances in that uh, you know, these guys aren't going to get full training camps to focus on each other specifically. And, and what we will get uh, is a fight hastily made on the other side of the world where not everybody is going to get to prepare as they normally would. Yeah, obviously, it's not the ideal circumstances. It's not how we would have liked to get it. But then I guess that the question is, would we have preferred it if Jorge Masvidal had said, you know what, I can't take it like this under such short term circumstances and all the, everything else that's going on around this fight? I just can't say yes to this. I'm going back to sitting out and waiting for the UFC to give me the contract I want. Like I th you know how that would have gone. I mean, you know how the UFC would have played that too. Dana White would have he, – he could not have gotten himself on TV or the internet fast enough to make a point by saying, hey, look, 
Remember this guy was just saying he wants all this more money from us and everything where they're not paying him well enough? We just offered to pay him more money, pay him the money he wants to go in there and fight for the title. And he told us no. So there you go. You can, if you watch this sport for enough, for, for a long enough time, you can just picture in your mind exactly how all that stuff would play out. And so, like, I agree that it's not the ideal circumstances at all, but I guess, is it so not ideal that we would prefer to just not do it? That we would prefer to just scratch that fight off the card and try to rebook, you know, Kamaru Usman versus somebody at a later date? I, I don't, I don't think we'd be happy with that either. But I, I mean, I definitely think we can't look past exactly what's being asked of Jorge Masvidal here because it's one thing to just agree to any fight in that kind of short notice. We talked about the weight cut, all that kind of stuff. But if you're fighting a guy like Kamaru Usman, who really depends on high output, pace, and pressure, he's just going to come in there, put it on you right away, and wear guys down, You know, punch his way into clinches and takedowns, get you up against that fence, rough you up for five rounds, and just feed you a steady diet of pain for 25 minutes. You really want to be ready for that kind of fight. Like You need to be ready for that style of fighter, and you just need to be physically ready to be able to match that kind of output and that pace. And that's really tough to do because especially even if you tell me Jorge Masvidal has been keeping himself in good shape and maybe even if you tell me Jorge Masvidal thought something like this could possibly happen. And all right, like I I could see the logic in that. But do you think he's really been in there in the gym during a pandemic in a state where that is one of the worst states for the pandemic right now? Do you think he's really been in there in that gym every single day grinding it out in that exact style to get ready for somebody like Kamara Usman? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, I think it's different. There's a, it's one thing to be in shape. It's a completely other thing to have done a fight camp in preparation for a single opponent. Right. Yeah. Like, and we, he's been denied that here. I, I wanted to read this email from David Lauderay because you mentioned, uh, you know, this was a better outcome than, than if they had decided to just scratch Kamaru Usman from this card. I agree with you, especially from a fan standpoint. I think that it's a, uh, it's a much better outcome here. But this here, here's this email from David Lauderay. He says, well, MMA going to MMA. I guess in the end, we get the matchup we actually wanted. Jorge Masvidal versus Kamara Usman. But of course, not in the traditional way where both men actually trained for the fight. I wouldn't give Jorge much of a chance with a full camp. But now on a week's notice, it seems like an impossible peak to climb. I'm sure he's getting capital P paid for stepping in. But is he kind of wasting his title shot if he loses? Uh, then wins a few in a row. Dana White for sure is going to turn around and say, why would we give Jorge another title shot? He had his shot and he blew it. Discourse, please. So you mentioned, uh, Ben, it, it would have played poorly, I think, in in the, the court of public opinion here for Jorge Masvidal if he had not taken this opportunity. What about the chance that he has taken taking by accepting this opportunity? Is this, you know, for the veteran Jorge Masvidal who has worked his way up through the ranks of MMA over a decade and a half and has just now become a superstar kind of like in what we assume is, is either the, uh, the, the, the end of his prime or maybe the start of the twilight of his career. Is it a big chance here for Jorge Masvidal to take this Kamaru Usman fight on this short notice where frankly he's going off as, as pretty close to a three to one underdog here coming in on, on less than a week's notice. Yeah. And that's a valid point. David Lauderdale makes a valid point here, but I guess the flip side is Jorge Masvidal is 35, you know, like it is kind of now or never in terms of getting your shot and making the most of it. I understand the, the, the logic, and I'm sure he's totally right, that David, Dana White would absolutely turn around and say, hey, I'm not going to give this guy another title shot. I don't care how many he wins in a row. Like, he already got beat by the champion. You know, we gave him his shot. He held us up for more money, and we're not going to turn around and give him another one just because he was willing to do it on a week's notice. You know, that just it just doesn't earn you 
that much latitude from the UFC, even when you think it should. But I, I can understand that Jorge Masvidal sitting at home going, you know what, I'm, I've been struggling to get my money up to this point where I feel like it's what I deserve and what I want. Then along comes this opportunity where you say yes, you fight for the title. Maybe your chances aren't great. Maybe they're worse than they would be at any other time. But you still got a chance. You you still you know you know Jorge Masvidal is going to go in there believing in himself and figuring that he has a way to win this fight, even if it's not a, a great chance. But also, if you get a deal out of it that pays you more, not only for this one but for the fights after this one, regardless of whether they are for a title or not then you probably feel like it's worth it. And you probably feel like right now is the time where you have to take that chance because you, you don't have an endless amount of time to wait around. Yeah. And I think given everything we know about Jorge Masvidal up to this point, we can assume money is probably the biggest motivating factor here, but he also definitely wants to go in there and win that, win that title. And uh, as you said, you, I assume you don't come into a fight like this expecting to lose or believing that you're going to lose. Uh, so let's take this question here from Dewey Decimal, who I assume is the inventor of the uh, the Dewey Decimal system. Good to hear from we, him. That we use uh, in libraries across the world. You don't hear that much about the Dewey Decimal system these days. No, I mean uh, the internet. It must have been, you know, pretty bad for the uh, for for Dewey Decimal usage. Is this why Dewey Decimal has fallen so far that he has to email the the CME podcast? Yeah, I, I would I would assume that he uh, hard times. Very hard for uh, for Dewey Decimal. Uh, here is the the, uh, the question. I'd rate my hype level for the new main event as incredibly hyped. When it was Usman versus Burns, I was barely able to get to a meh level. Uh, when was the last time a short notice change in a main event up to your hype level this much? So assuming that we get to uh, this fight, assuming that this fight goes off in some fashion that that it makes it resemble the fight that we would expect between Kamaru Usman and, and Jorge Masvidal. I would say we are right to have our hype level be pretty sky high. And it, it probably deserves to be right up there with uh, Nate Diaz stepping in against Conor McGregor. Uh, you remember uh, Michael Bisping coming in on short notice to fight Luke Rockhold and ultimately winning the middleweight title. Ben, what else is, are there other fights where you can recall like a short notice scramble sweetening the pot for you matchup wise. Not really. I mean, this one I think has to be way up there because yeah. I, you know, you remember the Conor McGregor, Nate Diaz one, but that one, while we, I think we remember that one much differently than we felt about it at the time. Cause I mean, we all like to see Nate Diaz fight and you add Nate Diaz into the room with Conor McGregor and things are going to get more interesting. But the thing we lost was a lightweight title fight against Javier Dos Anjos, where it was supposed to be like this historic thing. Conor McGregor had just won the featherweight title, was going to go up to lightweight, challenge the champion there, and trying to get a second belt right right away. And that was pretty unheard of. And so we were excited for that, just based not so much on the matchup, but on what it meant and what, what it would mean if he won that fight. And so then when you saw Nate Diaz in there, it was like, well, now we're just having fun, basically. And it ended up being very memorable and exciting, but it's, I don't think that's how we felt about it at the time. Same thing with the Michael Bisping, Luke Rockhold one, where, you know, we remember it now as Michael Bisping shocking the world, finally getting a UFC title so late in his career. And it was such a feel good moment for him. But at the time it was like, well, he's already been beaten by Luke Rockhold once when he had a full training camp to prepare. And now he's going to go in there on short notice and fight him again. Like there was just nothing in that first fight that would lead you to think, 
that he has a good chance to win this. And so in terms of how we feel about it before the fight, I think this one has got to be my choice. It's like the best one where you your plan B ended up being better than the plan A. To that end, though, are we going to be disappointed here? I wanted to read this tweet from Goran Pechnach. I'm sure I nailed it. He says, I'm pretty much against this fight under these conditions. After years of building up and rebuilding and renegotiating his way to the top, Masvidal decides to step up on a short notice against a draw vacuum who destroys careers versus 50-42 decisions in fights casuals hate. Is this going to be a blowout, Ben, for, for Kamara Usman? And by the time we actually see the fight, at the end of it, are we going to be like, man, I wish that we had that we had, had full training camps? Yeah, we may very well end up feeling that way. But I also think we will cut it a little bit of slack just because we'll it's not like this change makes you less interested in seeing this fight card. Right. I mean, just matchup wise, I think it sells more pay-per-views. And I think we also love a little bit of a Cinderella story in MMA, especially like the idea, okay, this guy, he wanted something. We weren't going to give it to him. And then he's willing to step up and take this big challenge, which seems on so many levels, like it could be a bad idea for him. He's willing to say yes to it, believes in himself, going to go over there and take a shot. And if he wins it, then, you know, that's a, a huge moment in MMA history, basically, not just for Jorge Masvidal, just for the sport like we'll all remember that moment and i think we love the possibility of stuff like that so much that at least pre-fight it's enough to get us hyped and we if we you know if it ends up with kamara usman just does kamara usman shit to jorge masvidal well he might have done that anyway might have done that if it had six weeks to prepare for each other you you, you don't know so i i understand why we should go into it with some reasonable expectations but i also think we should Allow ourselves to enjoy it and have a little bit of fun with it because we get so so little to enjoy these days, Jed. It certainly highlights the things that we like about Jorge Masvidal, right? The 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 uh, the calling card, if you will, that he that he kind of sailed to this unexpected superstar status on his willingness to fight anyone, anytime, anywhere, and under any kind of notice, and and very much on brand, I guess you would say, uh, for game bread here to step in and get his welterweight title shot on short notice, especially from a guy that, uh, you know, many of us got our first taste of fighting in a boatyard or fighting yeah. in a backyard somewhere before we really even knew who he was. Uh, I'm going to read this question from Stephanie Howell. It takes a more optimistic view, I guess you might say, than, than the one we just read. If Jorge Boots beats Usman on a week's notice, will people start to really question just how much time to prepare is optimal? I would think one week is probably not generally the right amount of time, but 12 weeks seems to leave fighters battered before they enter the cage. Thoughts? Okay, this is interesting because I, I was thinking about uh, maybe writing something on this this week because I, when I talked to Michael Bisping, we did a story where we looked back at his win over Luke Rockhold and especially now with the benefit of hindsight, you know, he admitted that when he first got that call and where, well, you know, not even got the call, basically like he had called Dana White to say, I will take this fight. And Dana White was like, no, oh, we got something else in mind. They think they were thinking about Jacques Array instead. And he was like, well, okay, that's that. Then I guess I can forget about it. And then they, Dana White announced on sports center, Michael Bisping is going to fight Luke Rockhold. And that's how Bisping found out like, Oh shit. Okay. I guess I'm actually getting it. And he was saying how he had a few moments there of self pity. Like, isn't this just my luck that I finally get the title shot that I've been talking about how I wanted it my entire career. And I get it under these circumstances where I got like two weeks to prepare. I haven't really been training. I'm, I'm kind of beat up and now I got to go in there and do it. And I'm not going to get another one if I lose this one. So 
he said that he felt bad for just a little bit. He called up his trainer, called up Jason Perillo, and Jason Perillo kind of talked him up. And after that phone call, he felt very different about it. He was like, okay, here we go. We can go in and do this. And then he was saying afterwards, looking back on it, one of the biggest problems that he had his entire career was overtraining, that he, he always would so obsessively prepare for every fight that he'd end up beating himself up in the gym and wouldn't be at his physical peak and would always do some damage to himself that he had to carry into the fight. And so this way, not only because you couldn't do that stuff to your body because you don't have time, but also you couldn't overthink it. You know, you couldn't just get in your own head for weeks and weeks. You just had to kind of go with what you had. And especially, I think, for fighters later in their career like this, I think it's tougher if you ask a a 22-year-old fighter, like, hey, get in there. You know, you got seven pro fights or something get in there and uh, on a week's notice and fight the champion. It's like, okay, maybe their bodies are more resilient uh, and overtraining is less of a concern for them. But they they don't have the kind of experience and like mental savvy that a fighter who's 35 does. Like, Roy Masvidal, what was he going to do in training? I mean, you know, he's probably going to prepare for some of the specific things Kamaru Usman does. He's going to get his body ready for that. But it's not like he has to learn a whole bunch of new techniques. You're just sharpening stuff up. You're gonna, you're the fighter. You're gonna be pretty much by the time you're 35, and you've been doing it as long as Jorge Masvidal has been doing it. So I do think there's something to that. That if you just, you don't have too much time to think about it. You don't have time to to grind yourself down. You just got to go with the shape that you're in and the stuff you already know how to do, and then take your best chance. Yeah, yeah. I think from like a physical matchup of styles perspective, this this short notice fight probably favors Kamaru Usman for all the reasons that we already talked about. But I wonder if from a psychological perspective, it actually favors Jorge Masvidal just for all the things they, that you just said. And especially since, you know, we mentioned the things that we knew about Jorge Masvidal in, in the past, like he seems like the kind of guy who might benefit from a, hey, let's just show up and see what happens kind of fight. That like his mindset seems specifically geared toward that style of matchup, just because it's it's man, it's kind of like walking into a boatyard and yeah. and you know fighting whoever's there. And in this case, it just happens to be Kamar Usman, and you're at Yaz Island, and you're inside the octagon. So I wonder if like a, a, the freewheeling sort of where let's just let it all hang out, be Jorge Masvidal, and, and take your best shot kind of approach actually does benefit Jorge. Uh, more than it would that it would somebody else. That's that's an interesting thing to think about as we rocket toward this this uh, this fight on Saturday night. Uh, we we know by the way that it was the big homie Melville Dewey who invented the Dewey Decimal System. Okay, back in the late 1800s. So save us your emails. <laughs> you don't have to send us your emails. We know what what the word decimal means. We're, we're good over here. Um, uh, any, but anything else you want to talk about here on the Masvidal-Usman tip? Yeah, one thing we haven't really touched on is if you're Jorge Masvidal and you go into this fight knowing that you know, you, you're confident that you're in pretty good shape, that you're always pretty ready to fight, but also that you have not trained for a 25-minute fight, does it change your game plan? Do you go in there thinking, you know what, even if I'm taking risks, I'll uh, – with a flying knee of Ben Askren's head in the opening seconds of a fight, like that, that exact kind of risk, in fact, might be the kind of stuff that starts to look a lot better to you in this fight. If you know, like, I don't have the gas tank for 25 minutes because I just haven't had a chance to get there, and he probably does, because even if he wasn't training specifically for me, Kamar Usman always fights pretty much the same way, and he was training for this date, so he has the advantage there. Does it make you more welcome to just taking 
big risks early on in the fight to try to end things early if you know that you can't do it in the later rounds. Well, I mean, as we sit here recording this podcast today, we're we're pretty much uh, one year removed to the day from UFC 239. And the eight, the five second flying knee KO of Ben Askren by Jorge Masvidal. So we know uh, not only is he capable of doing those kind of things, but he has the 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 courage to do them at the start of the fight. You know, just to kind of uh, let it all hang out, give it your best shot, and and let the chips fall where they may. And so, yeah, man, against Kamaru Usman, you better take those shots, or you might as well take those shots, I guess, uh, just because uh, it might be the best chance that you have. And I don't know that. If you are uh, Jorge Masvidal, you might not you might not fear the finishing ability of Kamara Usman, especially not early in the fight. You know the guy mostly goes to decisions in his most recent fights, aside from that late TKO against Colby Covington and a first round KO against Sergio Moraes back in September of 2017. Aside from that, it's all decisions uh, for Kamara Usman. So while we regard the guy as a, you know, a fearsome talent and a, a really, really well-rounded fighter and a guy who can kind of beat you anywhere. He's also grinding out these wins, you know? So uh, if you are Jorge Masvidal and you don't think he can stop you early or you think the potential for him to stop you early is is low, uh, you might as well t- take some home run swings, I would think. That's probably your best shot here. Yeah. Yeah. Here's what I want to know. Is the BMF title on the line? Gotta be. Is this is this a title unification fight? If uh, if Usman wins this, does he become the champ champ because he's got the welterweight belt and the BMF belt? There is nothing you can say to me, Chad Dundas, that will get me to stop thinking of this as a dual UFC welterweight title and BMF title fight. I don't care if the actual physical belt won't change hands. I don't care if all parties involved, including the UFC, come forward and say, we're not even going to utter the words BMF title, so don't ask us about it. In my mind, in the mind of the, the people, Chad, all the belts are on the line for this one. Got to be. I agree with you, man. I think it's, that's the way you got to do it. It's a unification bout here more than anything else. Let's get, the, let's get those dang welterweight titles unified so we have a BMF champ and a welterweight champ and, and you know, maybe they're the same guy. I don't know. Uh, all right, let's talk about some of the other fights here. Obviously, we got tr- a triple deck of uh of title fights here alexander volkanovsky against max holloway a rematch for the featherweight title going down as the co-main i know you probably saw this on the internet ben but speaking of things that when i saw them made me think yeah we should probably not be doing this we should probably not be having these fights under these conditions how about the max holloway training camp here where uh he didn't spar he didn't work out with with uh, sparring partners per se, and the first time that he saw his coaches, according to the internet, was when they picked him up at the airport. That he has kind of been doing this by himself in Hawaii due to COVID nineteen and and travel restrictions and everything else, and that uh, you know he'd been meeting with his coaches via Zoom, but mostly it sounded like Max Holloway has been getting ready for this rematch with Alexander Volkanovsky, kind of on his own at his at his house or at his gym. Uh, in like not the best conditions, frankly, to get ready for this uh, rematch for the 145-pound title. My f- question is, how much of that do we believe? You think Max it's a Holloway, smoke screen? Max Holloway is a guy who likes to have some fun, Chad. He has a good sense of humor. He might be just fucking with us to some extent. He might be just saying stuff. 
Also, though, he might be exaggerating it. Like, he might feel like there are very real concerns about whether he was able to prepare for it. And, in, you know, when you know people are going to ask you about that, I guess your choices are either to acknowledge what you did and acknowledge the possibility that it wasn't enough, lie about it and say that everything was normal and it was fine, or to go the complete opposite way and be like, you know what, it was even worse than it was. Like, it was even even tougher. I, did, I was able to do even less. And yet I'm still going to show up there and I think I'm going to win the fight. And I don't know. I guess I could see Max Holloway potentially doing that because it's like, you're right. When I heard that, all that stuff about this is how he had trained for it. I went, Oh no, that's, uh Oh, that's not a great sign. Like that doesn't seem like it'll better prepare you for a rematch against the guy who beat you the first time. And yet I also felt like, I don't know. I just, I didn't automatically think, well, that sounds like something we have to take at face value, and there's no way that he could just be screwing with us. So you think Max Holloway's having us on? There's a chance. I think there's a chance that he's having us on a little bit. If I he's mean, not, just though... To, just to look at the guy, it seems like he hasn't even gone out for a haircut. <laughs> I mean, the, the hair is pretty awesome. I, I think that that's another situation where the pandemic helped a man stumble upon personal style choices that he's going to want to stick with. But... I, if it's true that he wasn't really able to do any of that normal training for this, I, I don't know how you go in there and you fight Alexander Volkanovsky and you, if you haven't sparred, you haven't done any of that stuff. Just because that's, you better have your timing right. You better have absolutely every aspect of your game right if you're going to go in there against that guy. And I feel pretty confident that Alexander Volkanovsky was able to do all his shit because they're doing a little better with it in that side of the world, you know? Yeah, and we just saw Dan Hooker fight uh, Dustin Poirier a week or two ago, and and he did not win, but he certainly looked well prepared and and ready to go fifteen minutes and everything else. So uh, I think the city kickboxing guys are are at full strength, or at least we can make the assumption they're at full strength. We obviously don't really know what's going on with Volkanovski health wise, or if he's had any injuries or anything like that. But uh, but we do expect him to to show up well trained and ready to go for this fight. We don't know if we can say the same thing for Max Holloway. I just, uh, I don't know. I wish I could be as confident as you, man. I wish I could say this is just Max Holloway having us on, taking the piss, as they would say, uh, over there across the pond. But I just, it makes me feel nervous, man. It makes me feel a little nervous about this, this co-main. Uh, and again, was just one of the things where I was like, wow, we sh- you know what? Maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, you know, somebody was asking me that too uh, about just the fight island stuff in general but i think you could apply it to the ufc apex thing kind of like we talked about last week where it seems like it's just going to be the new normal that at least one fight gets scratched because of a covid positive but then we also don't think about all the other behind the scenes stuff like we we talked about this when they first started the restart that it seems like it's going to impact people differently and unevenly that some people are going to be, you know, whatever their reason is because of their gym setup, because like their relationship to their coaches or where they live and in the world and that kind of stuff. Some people might be affected not at all by pandemic stuff and other people might be super affected by it. And so you just don't always know exactly what it's going to do to their training and their preparation until we see them get in there. It is possible, I think, that we show up and do this fight, this pay-per-view and with Jorge Masvidal stepping in on a week's notice, with Max Holloway maybe only able to do his shit over Zoom, maybe we get in there and the top you know, two or three bouts, we come away from going, you know what, this was a bad idea. Like maybe we we should realize that sometimes no MMA is better than ill-prepared MMA. But I got to say, honestly, so far from what we've seen at, with the fights at the Apex and the fights in Jacksonville and everything, 
I don't know if we've seen a ton of evidence for that. I think that for the most part, people have looked pretty ready to go. Yeah, I would agree with that. The fights themselves have, for the most part, I think, uh, over overperformed my expectations or exceeded my expectations. Just in uh, just in in so far as how everybody would look and how ready to fight everyone w- would be. Now that we've we've uh, we've had some weight issues here and there, uh, and I expect that that will probably continue. But that's another interesting aspect here of UFC 251. Uh, with three title fights on the on the main card here, the, the pay-per-view main card, and especially with what we talked about with, with Jorge Masvidal, just in terms of like the, the mandatory quarantines that everybody has to do both before they leave and once they get to Abu Dhabi with a guy like Masvidal, man – you're cutting it close on this stuff that he, you know, if he's going to do a 48 hour quarantine before he flies out and then a 40 or 48 hour quarantine, once he gets there, uh, they better have some kind of weight cutting, uh, system set up or in like facilities available to him at the, the, the host hotel or, or the, you know, whatever the circumstances are over there on Yaz Island, be just because, man, he, for him to make 170 pounds and, and have to quarantine and do all this other stuff, like that, that's going to be a big issue in and of itself. Not to not to even mention any of these other guys from the uh, from Volkanovski Holloway or Peter Yan versus Jose Aldo. Like these guys all have to make the weight, and and going over there to Abu Dhabi and doing all this quarantine stuff, I think, just compounds the issue, just makes it more difficult. Yeah, yeah, I can't disagree with that. So as we look at the the odds here, Ben, we mentioned earlier Jorge Masvidal was pretty close to a three to one underdog at, at some places against Kamar Usman. If you look at Max Holloway versus Alexander Volkanovsky, Holloway is about a two to one underdog. You can get him at at two oh one if you go to sport sport bet, whatever that is. Uh, would you take that bet now, knowing what we think we know? Are you confident enough? That Holloway is just joking around that he's, that he's pulling a practical joke here that if you had $20 you never wanted to see again, you would you would take those odds. Or do these reports about the Zoom training and not seeing the uh, the training partners or the coaches until you get to the airport, would that would that scare you off? It doesn't make me feel better, you know? I it's already gonna be, we already knew it was gonna be a tough fight for him just because we know Volkanovsky's tough. He won the first one. He didn't blow Max Holloway out in the first one or anything. So it was conceivable that he could make a few small adjustments and then come back and find a way to win the rematch. But yeah, when you hear all the stuff about his training, even if I am believing as strongly as I might that he is kind of messing with us, I think that he is not totally messing with us. Like I think that it's definitely affected his training somewhat. And it was already going to be a tough fight. So, I don't I mean, if I had the $20 I never wanted to see again, let's just say I might put it somewhere else. You know, I don't, I don't know if I feel so confident in Max Holloway, but I don't know if I felt confident in before I heard about Zoom training sessions. We talked about the extent to which Jorge Masvidal is making a, uh, taking a gamble here, taking a risk to, uh, to fight Kamar Usman on short notice. Think about Max Holloway. After starting out twenty and three in his UFC or his MMA career, uh, up through his his defeat of Brian Ortega at UFC two thirty one, the guy's one and two obviously since then he lost to Dustin Poirier in that lightweight fight at UFC two thirty six, beat Frankie Edgar and then of course lost at UFC two forty five to Volkanovski. Now he comes in to rematch Volkanovski in his next fight. If he loses this one, he will be one and three in his last four and will have lost back to back men's featherweight title fights do you feel like he gets a gimme here could he could he like uh 
could he call a mulligan on this because of the pandemic? And then he would get some, uh, you know, political capital restored or some confidence maybe in the UFC management restored that he could work his way back into a title shot again uh, on, you know, somewhat in somewhat short order. Or like, is this as big a risk for Holloway as it is for a guy like Masvidal? No, I mean, I think the thing that changes the calculation a little bit is that Max Holloway is 28. You know, he's 28 and he's a former champion in the division. So you could definitely make the argument that he he has time on his side a little bit more. I mean, he also, though, he started very, very young. And as we've seen sometimes in the sport, the people who start very young, they also tend to finish younger. So, you know, he's got a little bit more miles on him than a lot of other 28-year-olds in the UFC. But I, I think still, like, you could make a, a case that Max Holloway – would have more reason to say, you know what, I'll I'll catch the next one and uh, to step out of this one if he really felt that he was underprepared. But I also think we've seen it so many times in so many different ways. Such a big part of the fighter mentality is geared around pushing through. You know, they, they always kind of think of it that way. Like even just a regular training camp, they're like, you're going to face some adversity. You're going to have to push through some stuff. And you just expect that. And so I can see why it's easy for them when on top of everything else – top of all the usual stuff there's a damn pandemic on and they go okay well this is just more adversity that i have to push through and this is just part one thing that'll make the story even more glorious when i finally win in the end they're just not their brains are not geared toward thinking all right maybe now it's too much maybe now is when uh, more is being asked of me than i can reasonably rise to like they just won't go there i think naturally and so it's hard for them i think to make that calculation that you know what I'd be better off waiting for another opportunity. Yeah, you take that whole mindset and you mix it in with the the financial reality of the sport that at least for some of these guys, not necessarily saying Holloway specifically, but like some of these guys probably need to get paid. Yeah. That becomes a pretty a pretty potent mix there with that mindset and the, the realities of the sport. It seems insane, Ben, that we could be this deep into a into a discussion of any pay-per-view any ufc event frankly and have not even mentioned barely peter yawn and jose aldo fighting for the vacant men's bantamweight title like this i feel like despite the fact that we all kind of raise our eyebrows or turn our noses up a little bit at the the inclusion of aldo here at 135 i feel like in in any other normal circumstances hype would be high for peter yawn versus jose aldo and in this instance you know, because of the stuff going on with the main event, because of the scrambled matchup there, because of Holloway and Volkanovski doing the rematch, you know, you got your men's bantamweight title fight here playing third fiddle, which I don't necessarily know is fair considering, uh, you know, the the hype for that we should have around a guy like Peter Yawn. Yeah, and while you're right that having Jose Aldo in this fight raises the old eyebrows a little bit just because you're thinking, hey, how has he made the case as the top bantamweight contender here? after going 0-1 in the division, once you get past that and you look at the actual matchup itself, hard not to think this is going to be a fun fight to watch for as long as it lasts, right? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, and Aldo is, is a live dog at least, man. You know, just knowing how he fights and knowing how Peter Yan likes to fight, they're going to both get to do their stuff. And, uh, you know, despite the fact Jose Aldo didn't get the nod against Marlon Moraes, he looked, he looked pretty good in that fight. It's not, it's not a, uh, like a two-foot putt here. Yeah. For Peter Yan, like there's some there's some danger here on top of all that. Well, let me ask you something about if you had twenty bucks, you never wanted to see again. Somebody mentioned this to me in the mailbag, and I ended up taking a look at it, and I've been thinking about it ever since. 
if you were to, let's say you think not only does Jan win this fight, but he wins it inside the distance. Now, if you want to get uh, odds on Peter Jan inside the distance, I believe you're looking at plus 105. Okay, that ain't bad. You had 20 bucks you want to see again. Do you think Peter Jan finishes this fight? That is not boring. That is not a boring opportunity for a gambler who loves to lose his money as much as I do <laughs> for entertainment purposes only. Entertainment purposes uh, only. May, yeah, maybe. Like if, if, I mean, if Peter Jan wins this thing, I feel like you have a pretty good chance of seeing a stoppage, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but then Josie Allen is a tough guy. Tough guy True. to get out of there. True. Do you think that the weight class difference affects it in either way? Meaning that does is Jose Aldo harder for a bantam weight to knock out? Or does Jose Aldo losing that weight and going down there, even if he wants us to believe again that it's gonna be easier than ever? Does he become a little less resilient after losing that weight? Um hard to know. Like we only have the the one fight, the UFC 245 fight against Marlon Moraes, and he looked pretty good in that one. Took some shots in that one against a guy who's a who's a striker, like a known a known striker, uh, and and you know fought him to a split decision, uh, or at least in Marlon Moraes, I should say, known as a, a a deft striker. Obviously, not a pure striker. A guy's got grappling credentials as well, uh, but like a guy who I think is regarded as being a guy who hits hard at that at that weight. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's, it's impossible to say like, and that's, you know, I keep coming back to this idea that like, despite the fact that we, we basically feel like we grew up with Jose Aldo at this point, like we've known him our entire goddamn lives at 33 years old. And you think the losses, the modern day losses for Jose Aldo are Conor McGregor, Max Holloway twice, Alexander Volkanovsky. And then the split decision against Marlon Moraes that clearly the UFC is is proceeding as though he won. Like those are the losses. And the the McGregor one, obviously the 13 second knockout kind of coming at the at the height of Conor McGregor's powers is almost one you got to throw out like it's the the low score from the Romanian judge yeah. in a gymnastics competition or something like that. Not to take anything away from McGregor because it's one of the more shocking outcomes obviously in all of MMA history, but at the same time, like I don't know what it tells us aside from the fact that Jose Aldo can get knocked out by a guy who hits him real hard. But like, if you, if you just take those losses, I sit here today, frankly, not knowing what to expect from Jose Aldo. Yeah. Well, then the flip side is, if Jose Aldo were to come out here and fucking win this thing, Chad, if he were to come out here, beat the terrifying young Russian, Peter Yan, who everybody is super hot on right now, win the vacant men's bantamweight title, become a two-division UFC champion, and at this late stage in his career, do you sit back and go, okay, I have to read, rework my uh, greatest of all time rankings? I think Jose Aldo has entered the GOAT conversation in, in, in a new way than ever before. Well, you'd have to feel good for the guy, right? Just like Regardless of the fact that that we might not think he deserves to be in this fight, but if he wins it, that's an amazing story. And it's like a story that is, that is uh, again, overshadowed and overlooked on this card by the inclusion of Masvidal and, and the intrigue around a rematch between Volkanovsky and, and Holloway. Uh, but yeah, man, it would be, uh, would be a tremendous accomplishment. I don't know where you would put it all time 
I don't know where you would rank Jose Aldo all time because of it. And when it comes to, you know, Peter Yan, this win, if he got a win over Peter Yan, let's say hypothetically, and won this, this championship, I, I, I don't know if we would, would we, would we, I'll, I'll turn the question back on you. Would we use that as an example of Jose Aldo's greatness? Or would we say, ah, oh, man, Peter Yan hadn't fought anybody up to that point because, you know, the win over 41 year old Uriah Faber again at UFC 245, while impressive, uh, is the signature win at this point for Peter Yan. Aside from that, he's got Jimmy Rivera, John Dodson, uh, Douglas Silva de Andrade, Jin Susan, and uh, Taruto Ushi, uh, Ishihara in his in the rest of his UFC career. And then nine fights before that, just uh, on the independent circuit, mostly in Russia. So, like, I don't know if Jose Aldo wins this. Are we like, oh my God, Jose Aldo is the, is the greatest of all time? Or do we look at Peter Yan maybe and think we overhyped this guy a little bit? I don't know. I mean, we're assholes, so we might do the thing where we think that Peter Yan was just overhyped. And when I say we, I mean the entire MMA community. We are that type of asshole. But I would, think, I mean, it would be such a moment for Jose Aldo, who pretty much everybody has kind of written off at this point. And not written off as saying like he sucks and he was never any good, but just that like, hey, he had his time. It was as the this, this featherweight great. His attempt to reinvent himself as a bantamweight is born out of somewhat desperation and feeling like he's blocked off at 145 and will never go anywhere else there. And you know what? We're all content with the highlights. Thank you very much. We'll, we'll keep watching our Jose Aldo's greatest hits, but we really don't see it going anywhere in the future with your career. And if he comes out there and becomes the UFC men's bantamweight champion, especially then turns around and is able to defend it against somebody, I mean, then we all have to be like, well, shit. We we judged him too quickly, too harshly, and we were wrong, and Jose Aldo is one of the greatest. Yeah. It's interesting here that the odds on the Aldo-Yan fight are very close to what the odds are in the Holloway Volkanovsky fight. That all that that Aldo is is plus two hundred, plus two hundred one, and that Jan is minus two fifty, which is is about the same as what people have Volkanovsky at. So, at least odds wise, these these seem to be comparably competitive, which I would not necessarily have expected. Yeah, me neither. This fight. All right, here's even despite the fact that you and I don't gamble, I don't know why we're we're talking so much about the odds and we're. having so many hypothetical betting questions here, but I got two more quick ones for you before we squeeze in some other stuff about this UFC 251 main card. Uh, If I gave you $20 you never wanted to see again, no, I'm not giving it to you. It's just yours. You earned it. I don't know what you did, kid. You had a lemonade stand. Who knows? Don't ask Uh, too many questions about how I got that $20, Chad. And I said you had to put a bet down on one of the underdogs in the three title fights at UFC 251. Who do you bet on? Oh. Who do you give the best chance of pulling off the upset this weekend? Um, Max Holloway. Okay, that's a that's a decent answer. What if I said you could do that, or I would allow you to put that twenty dollars you never wanted to see again on a parlay on all three of the favorites? That basically you would need all three favorites in this title fight to win in order to cash your ticket. Would you do that, or would you take Holloway with the upset pick? No, that's tough. That is tough, Jed. You know, I think I might still go with Holloway just because mainly it's because I don't want to sit there watching Jorge Masvidal versus Kamaru Usman and have to be rooting for Jorge Masvidal to lose. I think just everything about the guy and the situation and everything that he like, – don't you want to see Jorge Masvidal come in and pull this off? Wouldn't that just be fun, like a great story? 
it's hard. I, I don't know if I could bring myself or I can feel good about myself sitting there and hoping he loses just so my parlay hits. Uh, yeah. That's just not, yeah. it's not way I'm, I, I got to stay true to myself here, Chad. Right. I mean, I think any of the underdogs would be great stories here. It actually reminds me of my friend, uh, Tyler, who, uh, when a big fight would come along that he felt like he was emotionally invested in, he would bet against the person that he wanted to win. So like if, if he were going to root heavily for Jorge Masvidal in this fight, he would put down a small bet on Kamaru Usman uh, so that he could root for the fighter that he wanted to win. But in the eventuality that that fighter lost, you'd be like, well, OK, I already, I, at least I made a little money. Oh, that are some complicated emotional stakes there because then the flip side is making sure that one way or another you're at least a little bit sad. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess he expected that anyway. Well, that says something about his outlook on life. And let me just say – Knowing him as a person, I'm not surprised that that would be a, a strategy he would go with here, just both in this specific example and generally. Before we take this question from Mr. Burrito Bowl, I just want to uh, reiterate for everyone listening, do not take any of our betting advice. Yes, ever. any time, ever on this show, and that includes this week's show. From Mr. Burrito Bowl, he writes, so Paige Van Zandt, okay, here's another one about the odds. We're talking more about the odds. So Paige Van Zandt is a plus 550 underdog while Amanda Reboss is a minus 900 favorite. Is Reboss that much better than Paige? If I had 20 bucks, I never wanted to see again. Emoji with the sideways gaze. Uh, you guys want to talk about the, that for a little bit? Uh, I mean, it seems pretty clear like that the UFC has something in mind here that they are trying to do. Right. Like, I mean, I could see how you could look at the odds and be like, whoa, that's pretty lopsided here. But uh, you take Paige Van Zant, who has a bit of a weakness when it comes to the submissions game. And then you put her up against Amanda Rebus, who seems like that's exactly what she's going to want to go in there and do. It seems like the UFC knows what they're they're doing here when they send Paige Van Zant out on this fight. Yeah. And like, let's keep in mind, they're not the ones that make the odds. So it was the odds makers that saw this matchup and were like, well, holy shit. Yeah. Right. So uh, the odds makers at least believe Amanda Rebos is that much better than Paige Van Zandt. And that's sort of the only thing that matters, <laughs> I guess, as far as the, the line is concerned and about where bets are coming down and, and headed into UFC 251. If Amanda Rebos wins this bench, she will have defeated both Mackenzie Dern and Paige Van Zandt. Will she adopt some manner of uh, legend killer gimmick? Will she say she's on a legend's ass whipping tour? Uh, legend might be too strong a word, but that, you know, you have to workshop it. We need to get just the right term about she's out here bursting height bubbles, maybe, but I don't even know if that applies because Paige Van Zandt's height bubble has been bursted for a little bit of what. Also, Paige Van Zandt has fought like a year and a half, right? So yeah. uh, it seems like the UFC is putting her in this pretty classic situation where, like, hey, Go out there, do us a favor. We want to make this person is intent on hitting free agency, and we want to make sure she does it on a, a down note. Go out there and do us a favor here and beat this girl up. She's fact checking, motherfuckers. Okay, that's not bad, Jeff. That is not she's bad. She's the fact checker, Amanda Rebus. Okay, I don't hate it. I'm not saying I'm not saying it rolls off the tongue. I'm not saying it's saying it's particularly fearsome, but it's there. It's there for the taking. Uh, before we wrap up, let's talk just briefly about Jessica Andrade, Rosnama Yunus here in the rematch at, at women's strawweight. Obviously, we all remember the terrible KO slam that befell uh, Nama Yunus back at UFC 237 in May of last year when she was the champion. It feels like just, you know, with everything that's been going on, trademark, uh, <laughs> that that happened 
two lifetimes ago. Not only because of everything that we've all been through, but just because of the like the damn journey that the women's strawweight title has been on since then. Yeah, yeah, it does. And uh, you also, it's such a weird fight to try to figure out how this version of it is going to go down because, as we talked about before, with the first fight. Rosanamunas is piecing her up early on, and it looks like, okay, this is going to be pretty one-sided. And then she gets spiked on her head and knocked out. And as much as you hate to do it, you did come away with that fight with a little sense of, well, could you do that again if you had to? Could you could you, you know, could you make the same half-court shot a second time? I'm not so sure that you could. And then though you put it through this everything that's going on, as you said. You know, Rose Namajunas was supposed to fight, had pull out, had dealing with a little bit more personal ramifications with all the pandemic stuff than a lot of other people were dealing with. She also, she's just a little bit more honest, I think, than a lot of other fighters about how she's feeling at any time and where she thinks that her career is and where it's going and, and things like that. And so it's always tough to get a read on exactly which version of these people are coming into this fight at this time. I don't know, man. It's It's a real toss up for me. Just for, for all those reasons, there's just so many variables that I can't quite figure here. Yeah. Uh, and again, I feel like, you know, everybody likes Rose, right? Like Rose is a likable person in the landscape of this sport. And I feel like if she comes back and, and gets a victory here in the rematch against Jessica Andrade, it will be a similar feel-good moment. Not Maybe not to the heights that it would be if like Jose Aldo – uh, or Jorge Masvidal, or even Max Holloway won won the title. But like, if we if Rose got a little get back here and beat Jessica Andrade, I think many people in the MMA landscape would be like, okay, that's a feel good moment, that's a heartwarming moment. And yet, there's been so much uh, unknown about Rose just swirling around her, even when she was still the champion. You could just as easily convince me that she would win this fight and immediately become a number one contender for Wiley Zhang as she would win this fight and just be like, okay, that was it for me. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, it's tough to look too far ahead for anybody here. Would love yeah. that. Yeah, you know, like, and I don't, I don't know. I feel like this is one where after the results are in, everybody's going to feel like they knew it all along. Right. <laughs> Like it's all the, the picture is going to become very clear at that point, but beforehand, I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah. Everything will be clear in hindsight as it so often is. Did you, how about your guy? Uh, I don't want it to go unremarked on your dude. Easy Dos Santos is on this card, yeah. Jed. Yeah. I saw that easy Dos Santos in a welterweight fight against Muslim Salikov. So that'll be uh that's an interesting fight. Salikov comes in on a three fight tear. Easy Dos Santos uh, had that loss to Li Jing Liang last August, but then uh, got the taste out of his mouth, at least with the uh, unanimous decision win against Alexei Kunchenko. I feel like you brought that up just so I would have to pronounce all those names right in a row. You also uh, got yeah, the man, never sleep on Easy Dos Santos. That's Secret, Secret of the Ooze and, and Jerry Prochaka, uh, or Prochazka. I can never pronounce that dude's name right. Uh, that's that's his debut and like a guy who could add some considerable spice to the light heavyweight division, frankly. So it's not just a main card affair here at UFC 251. There's a, there's there's quite a lot of interesting storylines on here, to be honest. Yeah. I was going to ask you this before we wrap up. We have conspicuously not mentioned hashtag Fight Island. We know that the co-main event podcast remains skeptical. 
as to uh, how much how Fight Islandy this is going to feel. What's one thing you would you look for on this broadcast? Is there something where where you where if you saw it you'd be like, okay, they tried, they tried to make this feel special and and like it was a an actual Fight Island type scenario. Hawaiian shirts. That's it. Just if no. they got if like. I'm mostly joking, but I, I do want to see something visual, like just in inside the arena, something, uh, something that you can put on there to show us that this is different than just any every other time that you've been to Yaz Island in Abu Dhabi. Because otherwise, palm trees. Yeah, I mean, I've seen the pictures that they put out where they've got like a cage out on the beach and there are palm trees around it, yeah. and it's like right. okay, but if if that's just out there for display. And the rest of the whole thing feels like it's taking place in a hastily built arena in Abu Dhabi. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to be enough, man. Also, I saw this picture, uh, BT Sport, the UFC on BT Sport Twitter account put out here where it's like a cartoon picture of everybody arriving at Fight Island. They're out there on the beach and everything. And, uh, you know, you can see uh, Jan and Aldo in the background both tugging on the Bantamweight title. You can see the COVID-19 testing thing set up there. Uh, you got Darren Till getting texts from Bobby Knuckles and Mike Perry. Maybe the best part, though, other than Rose Namajunas looking, like standing there and looking like she would prefer that she not even be included in this cartoon. Uh, in the background, you can see Bruce Buffer in a red, like, valet Bellman outfit pushing a luggage cart across the sand as he says, it's time. Wow. Yeah. Well, so some of some of that seems very true to life. <laughs> some of it does. Now, they're using the same broadcast team for all of these Fight Island events is my understanding. Uh but what I want is Cormier on a flotation device in a pool next to the cage. Like okay. I want him on a, like the floating lounge with a, you know, with a beach ball in the pool with him. He's sipping a, an umbrella drink. Mike him up. I just want him out there. Basically, he's floating around there like uh, Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop 2, telling everybody, get your swimming chunks on and get in this pool, man. Exactly. And, yeah. Exactly. And if, if you can't get DC, I'll take Bisping. Put Bisping out there in the pool. In fact, both of them. Yeah. I want Bisping and Cormier either in a pool or hot tubbing. Although I, I doubt that you'd want to be in a hot tub in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. In the middle of July when it's like 106 degrees or whatever. But point. like put put those guys both out there on flotation devices, sipping sipping their Mai Tais, you know, watching the fights and just just and you can I can select that audio feed if I want. Okay. I can just yeah. listen to Bisping and Cormier talking in the pool during the fights. You do that, maybe I'll I'll take back at least half the stuff I've said about Fight Island. <laughs> all right. Uh, I don't think we got much chance of seeing those things. Uh, all right. That's going to wrap it up for the co-main event podcast this week. Of course, remember, we'll be back on Wednesday for the live chat over on Patreon. Are we doing uh, – we watching Kingdom for Wednesday? Yeah. So you want me to doing. squeeze in a couple episodes of Kingdom in the next 48 hours? That is exactly what I want you to do. All righty. So we'll have that as all as well on Wednesday and then, of course, Friday for the uh, the power hour before we roll into the weekend for UFC 251 with the with the fight party. If you're not currently a patron, get over there, man. Join the team. Sign up. Be part of the fight party coming up on on Saturday night. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Who's the most likely 
member of the UFC broadcast team to sport a Hawaiian shirt. I think it's John Anik. You know he's got one. Yeah. Plus, Anik, he probably has some, like, uh, some tropical socks. Oh, yeah. Tropical aim socks that he could throw on. And you know I've actually, I bet Anik has some crazy suit options. Or give somewhere. John Anik out there with, like, the sunscreen where it's, like, the full white thing that covers your nose. Yes, absolutely. There you go. I like it. You, I, you know, Paul Felder. I can see Paul Felder rolling out there in a Hawaiian shirt. And if Paul Felder's out there in the heat of Abu Dhabi, he better be having a lot of sunscreen. Yeah, that's true. That dude will burn. I know from, from personal experience, that dude will burn. Yeah.